0: In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you're going to have to flip up and then flip back, I apologize. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and notice, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so God had called his people, he had said, look, I want dads specifically to lead the way in this. I want you to be those who don't just kind of say, here's the information, here's the religion that we believe. But the command is, you're to love God. This is to be something inward. This is to be something transformational. You're to love God, and then you are to teach your children what that means. You are to explain to them what the scripture says about loving God. And so the second day in the feast, they're coming to Ezra because they want to know how to do this. They're hearing these things, and I can imagine that they maybe uh, they get to Exodus. And maybe Exodus 23, and they read about this Feast of Ingathering. They hear about maybe in Exodus 23 or Exodus 34, the Feast of Ingathering. Which is the same feast we see happening here. The Feast of Ingathering was basically the sort of last harvest festival and they would kind of, at the end of the year, the last harvest, they would gather the sin and they would celebrate God's provision. In fact, in, they would have probably read also in Leviticus 23 about where this was talked about uh, to be a celebration of God's provision. It was just to be that, it was to be a celebration. This was to be a seven day party. I love that God commands parties, it was to be a celebration. And then later on in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we see that it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Because it wasn't just the fact that God would always provide for his people, but how God had specifically provided for his people when they came out of bondage from Egypt and they kind of had to travel through the desert, God had supernaturally provided for them. And so they would build these little temporary shelters to remember how God had protected them and provided for them as they traveled out of bondage into the promised land. But also, it's interesting, the prophet Zechariah talks also about the Feast of Tabernacles, and he, he says that this feast specifically, it's pointing forward to a time when all the surrounding nations, the nations that used to persecute Israel, that those surrounding nations will one day come and celebrate this feast and worship the God of the Scriptures. Pretty amazing. And so you can imagine when these dads are hearing about this, when they're the, the, the wives and the children and, and the whole Whole of Israel is hearing these words being read that they go, we have no idea how to actually walk in this. How do we do this? And so they grab Ezra. Why Ezra? Well, we know from Ezra, which if you remember, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book in Hebrew. This is what it says about Ezra, who was this well-known teacher of the law in Israel of this time. It says, Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Kind of as a side note, here's a good hint for you guys who are you uh, men and women who are teaching Sunday school or leading house groups, there's some really good uh, instruction for us. How do you prepare? Well, first you prepare by seeing what does God actually say, then you prepare by saying, "God, help me to walk in this." And then you're able to teach it. And so they go to Ezra because they, they're wanting something more than just information. They don't want to just hear, religious truths, they don't want to just know stuff, they want to follow their God. They are experiencing, remember at this time, they are experiencing God's word coming to pass. God had said, I'm going to bring you back out of captivity after they had gone into Babylon because of their sin. He says, in 70 years I'm going to bring you back out, we're going to restore Jerusalem And they'd seen the temple restored. They were seeing civic life restored. And then when Nehemiah comes on the scene, they see the walls restored. And they're going, Man, God is doing something. We want to know how to walk with this God. We want something more than just information. What they were wanting to do is this listen, very simple, but very profound. They were wanting to obey, they wanted to obey their God. That's a novel idea. Uh, obeying God it's funny because when we talk about obedience what we tend to think of is legalism oh we're not saved by works we're saved by grace so I don't need to do works to be right with God that's kind of true it is the gospel that we're saved by grace not of works absolutely true But we look at obedience either as, in in, in a legalistic sense, oh, don't put that trip on me, I don't need to obey, or in a legalistic sense of, oh, I better obey. And our motivation is fear. I'm afraid if I don't obey, then I'm toast. (laughs) And it was interesting, when we start feeling that way, you know what we're forgetting? We already haven't obeyed. Mm. I mean, seriously, think about this. Think about why you didn't just wake up this morning and go poof in the smoke. By God's judgment. Because if you know what God requires of his people, you know we should just be all poof. (laughs) But we're not. So so what, what we're seeing here is a great picture of how obedience fits with restoration. Because remember, God's not just, in Nehemiah, God's not just using Nehemiah or using his people to restore walls. God's restoring his people through the process. He's, he's bringing his people back into right relationship with them, with him, learning to walk and worship the way they ought to. And a big part of that, listen, is our obedience. And so the first thing we really want to recognize in, in this is that obedience is a worshipful response. In fact, you might say it's the worshipful response. These guys, they want more information, so they get Ezra, They say, we we want to know how we do this. And so in verse 14, it says that they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month. Now, it's interesting that Nehemiah would, would record it like this. He didn't just say they found in the law, but he says they found in the law that God commanded. In other words, they're recognizing this is what God says. Yeah, Moses wrote it down, but this is what God says. These are God's command. This is about God's authority. That's how they viewed Scripture. Interesting point. That's how Jesus viewed Scripture, which is why that's how we view Scripture. <laughs> that, yeah, men wrote it down, different kinds of people, men, and different kinds of, of, of walks of life at different times of history, but it was God who was speaking through those men to make sure that we had His authoritative word. So this is how they treated it. And so they're recognizing that this is God's word, and it's interesting because they, they recognize this is God's word, and it says in verse 15 that, that, that what they decide they need to do is they should, they should announce and proclaim in all the cities and in Jerusalem saying, "Go and cut down these branches so you can make these booths. as it says in verse 15, as it is written." They're wanting to, they're being very intentional about their obedience. They're not just thinking, man, this God's holy, he's in charge, Uh, quick, look busy, do something. No, they're reading God's word and they're saying, how do we do this? If God has said that we need to do this, how do we do this? It's a really important question for us to ask. They're intentional about their obedience. And they're announcing that all the cities should be involved. Why? Because all of God's people are called to obedience. Now at this point, some of you might be going, okay, that's fine, that's Old Testament stuff. Kind of scary, we're not really that interested. But no, this is Jesus stuff. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 17. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's not just about memorization, though it might include that. But if my words abide in you, if you're holding on to them as truth is the idea, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. By this, my Father is glorified, he says. Jesus says even plainly, a couple, a chapter before this in John 14, 15, you guys probably know this one. Jesus says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Obey. See, this is a worshipful response. The worshipful response. God, you first loved us. You're so good to us. Everything that we have that's good and perfect comes from you. We should simply just submit to you and do what you say. You're worthy of that kind of obedience. I remember when my my kids were small. They hate when I use them as an example. But they're not really, there's only one left. Anyways, it's okay. Poor Bubba. But when my kids were little and, and you'd want them to do something, you know. Okay, here's, here's what you need to do. Actually, when they're little, they still do this. But, so, but when they're little, one of the things they used to try to pull was, okay, you need to do your chore. Remember, your chore to put the dishes away. Okay, Dad. 45 minutes later, what are you doing? You're coloring on the table. Why didn't you put the dishes away? Um, I'm making you a picture. <laughs> Quick, look busy. But what do we know about obedience? When Saul did that to God, King Saul. God says, look, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites. I don't want you to keep any of, their, uh, of the spoil from war. Just, it's over. This is a wicked race. It's going to come back to haunt you if you don't end it. might be hard for us to understand, but he calls for this total obedience. What happens? He has no problem doing that. He, he Saul, wipes out women and children. Got no problem with that. But, oh, this stuff that's worth money, I'm going to keep that. And the king, you know, I don't want to kill him. He, he might have some wisdom I can glean from. And so he partially obeys. And what happens? God takes the kingdom away from Saul and tells Saul, Saul, to obey is better than your sacrifices. Oh, I'm just giving this for the Lord. Oh, I just drew this picture for you, Dad. No, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, this is the thing that we have to get through our head. If if we say, God, I want to worship you. If we say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And I want to worship you. That needs to be expressed in obedience. Recognizing His authority, Lord, what would You have me do? I want to do what You say. Now, there's a reason for this. You need to understand: when God calls us to obey, it's for our benefit. And if you don't understand this, you're not going to obey the right way. It's not that your obedience won't be worshipful. Because here's the deal: you can obey and not worship. It happens all the time. It's called religion. It's all over the world. People obey. And they don't worship. But you cannot worship without obedience. God gains nothing from our obedience, but we gain everything. It's for our benefit. Look what happens in verse 16. So they did this. The people went out. They they, uh, brought them and they made themselves these booths, these temporary shelters. And notice it says that each one did this on the roof of his house or in these other areas where they could have done this. Each one participated. This is the thing about obedience. It provides an opportunity for us to have a personal relationship with Jesus. A personal relationship with God. Because listen, uh, I can obey for your benefit, but I can't obey for you. Do you understand what I'm saying? You have to choose to obey God for yourself. I can't do that for you. No one can do that for you. Sometimes we, we would like that to happen, If if you've grown up in the church, you kind of think, God, can't you count my parents' obedience? That would be easier for me. But no, it doesn't work that way. We can't look back to how well our ancestors obeyed and go, that counts for me. No, it might benefit you, but it doesn't count for you. God calls us to personally respond to him, to personally obey him, to say, God, I believe you are who you showed yourself to be, that you're worthy to be trusted and obeyed. This is what they're doing. They're not just going, oh, Feast of Tabernacles. That sounds kind of fun. Yeah, I'll watch. I'll go see what happens. Oh, look at those dozen people running around crazy making little shelters. That's interesting. I'm learning something here. Doesn't that sound like church? (laughs) I'm not going to participate. I'm just going to watch. No, these guys all participated because this was personal. This was about these individuals following the God who had made uh, covenant with them. But also it says, In verse 17, first part of verse 17, it says, So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under these booths. In other words, it wasn't just a chance for personal uh, responsibility. It was also a way that they united together in corporate worship. One of the things that makes worship through song um, a beautiful thing is not just when it sounds really good. Sometimes we judge Worship through song that way. It sounded great today, by the way, team. Don't worry, it sounded really good. <laughs> but sometimes we judge it by, oh, didn't that sound really nice? Or everyone seemed to be singing, that was really nice. No, you know what makes corporate worship beautiful and special and, and a sense that God is with us? When we're all doing it out of obedience. It's what unites us together. When we come and say, God... You call us to bring a sacrifice of praise and you're worthy of that sacrifice of praise. So we are in obedience going to say, God, we want to praise you. Our heart is for you. That is fulfilling the command, making a melody in your heart towards God. And that's a blessing to one another. And that can happen when the music team sounds amazing and when they sound not so amazing. It can happen when there's three of us and when there's 300 of us. Because it's about God's worthiness. And when we do that together, there's something special. In fact, we see this happening in verse 17. They do this, they're they're not worshipping through song, they're worshipping by building a little temporary shelter and staying staying in there for seven days. But it it says that there's something special about this time because since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, several hundred years before this, this hadn't happened. Now we know from the Old Testament that they had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles since Joshua, son of Nun. This is not a reference to it never happened, but it never happened like this. It never happened where everyone participated, everyone was involved, and everyone did it out of obedience. God, we want to do this to please you, to love you. We did it together. That's what made it special. And what was the result? The result was they were, and there was very great gladness. Now listen, I'm not not at all saying that your joy in the Lord is dependent upon all of us collectively getting it right. No. Praise God that's not the case. (laughs) But I am saying one of the things that makes a gathering together a great gladness is when we're all gathering together out of obedience. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to do what you say. My heart is to worshipfully obey. We're benefited from this. Others are benefited from this. But you know what also is going on here? The reason there's this great gladness is because they're experiencing something that other generations hadn't. Other generations gave lip service. They, 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 They would maybe have the feast. They would maybe watch other people build the booths. But this generation, they all were experiencing God at work. They were seeing God do something. They were experiencing God do something. you remember in in Luke chapter 6? In Luke chapter 6, when Jesus tells this parable of the one who builds his, his house on the rock versus the one who builds his house on the sand. He starts off that parable by saying, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? And then he says this, listen. He says, whoever comes to me, Jesus says, and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you, Whom he is like. He is like a man building the house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of the house was great. Both built houses. Both experienced storms. Both experienced floods of water. Both heard what God says. But one responded in obedience and one didn't. The one who didn't respond in, obe- the one who didn't respond in obedience met destruction, and then when he did respond in the, into obedience, experienced stability <coughs> in the midst of storms. Oh, yeah. See, what we're talking about here as far as obedience benefiting us, we're not saying, okay, if I obey, good stuff will happen to me. I mean, people have written books about the subject. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why would you ask that question? You'd ask that question because you assume, if I'm doing good, good stuff should happen to me. Kind of makes sense. I'm doing the right thing. God, I'm obeying. Why is bad stuff happening to me? He didn't say bad stuff wouldn't happen to us. In fact, interesting, in this parable, in this metaphor that he's using, the same bad stuff happened to the person who obeyed that happened to the person that disobeyed. But what was the difference? The person who obeyed, who did what Jesus said, experienced a stability that the person that that didn't obey could never experience. They experienced God's work in their heart. Now, can I ask you a question, especially maybe those of you who, who maybe wouldn't identify as Christians here. You're just kind of maybe looking into this Jesus stuff. Came for a free lunch, whatever the case might be. Kind can, can can of I addressing you for a second. T- tell me if I'm wrong, but you would like to see how this Jesus stuff actually works. You want to know if there's any credibility to the claims of Christ. And so you're looking at Christians to look for that credibility. Is that accurate to think that? Because that's the way I was before I came to Christ. I didn't grow up in the church, and so before I came to Christ, and the Christians around me, I wanted to see, Do these guys have any credibility? So I tried to date the girls. The ones that loved Jesus said no. <laughs> the ones that didn't love Jesus said yes. And I tried to intimidate the guys. And not a single one ever stood up to me. I didn't beat them up or anything. Don't, don't, don't worry, it wasn't that bad. But still, I would try to intimidate them, kind of poke fun at them. And honestly wishing one of those guys would have said, you know, do you even know what you're talking about? And I would have said, no, tell me. Hmm. I want to see if there's anything to this Jesus stuff that I hear every once in a while somebody saying, usually somebody's mom telling me about. Is there anything... To this, What does it even mean? It's not, listen, we don't obey because it, it, it solves all of our problems. We obey because, listen, we believe God benefits us. We believe he's worthy of that obedience and that we benefit from that obedience. It doesn't mean that things always go great, but it means that we are able to show something about the goodness of God through the difficulties of life. these guys were rejoicing as they had this feast. They were experiencing God's work in a powerful way. But notice, we're almost done. Verse 18. We see from this verse, really, that obedience requires time. It says that, that, and day by day, from the first day until the last day, Ezra read the book of the law of God. So as we said, they're fulfilling this uh, command in Deuteronomy. He's reading the word to them every day. Interesting, we saw in Deuteronomy, didn't we, that this was something that was meant just to happen every once every seven years, but from about this point on it became the habit of Israel to do this every year, to read in the Feast of Tabernacle every day. And there's a principle here, there's an application here for us. I think we need to take time to go through God's word. Now I don't, I don't, of I don't want to show hands because I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but just answer this question to yourself. Have you, I'm talking to you guys who are already Christians now. I'm speaking to you guys who are Christians. Have you read through the entire New Testament? (coughs) Have you read through the entire Bible? It's interesting. It's interesting that for centuries, and, and even now, people are taking great risks to their own personal security and safety and those of their families to get a hold of this book we have several versions on ourselves and we rarely crack it open you know how we do this um, many of you guys probably know we do this sort of bible reading plan and it's, it changes each year every year we always read through the new testament but then every year we read through a third of the old testament the reason we just did a third was we didn't want it to be so overwhelming that you feel i can't do it I do this plan, if I just read, if I just think, I'm going to read it to make sure I read it, even if I read it out loud to myself, it takes a bit longer than if you just kind of read it. If I read the Bible plan, it takes a, it takes a long time. Man, it's about seven minutes. It's a chapter in each. It's not very much. Now, if I read it and pray into it and say, God, would you speak to me? Would you meet me here through this? Help me to understand this. I'm going to walk in this. It takes a bit longer than that. But the reality is this, listen. These things take time. You can't say, I'm too busy to obey. Take time. Do you even know what God wants you to do? Who's brave enough to raise her hand and tell me what are the two laws that all the other laws hang on? Who knows that about Scripture? What are the two laws? Greg? Love God, Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and to. Love others as you love yourself. That's right. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? That is it. Okay, what does that look like? How does that happen? How do we know? We go into God's word and we say, God, okay, teach me how to do this. Teach me how to love you and how to love others. And we believe his spirit's going to teach us. He's going to meet us there. That's what they were doing during this feast, but also it says, listen, they kept that feast for seven days. In other words, what they were doing is they were having an extended time of holy celebration. Now, I do think there's nothing wrong with us having fun together. I I don't want anybody here to feel like, oh, I wasted my time at church because I I, I, I had conversations about whatever shallow subject you want to fill in the blank. You know, this is how we we get to know each other by finding out what people do. There's nothing wrong with having non-spiritual conversations, even at church, okay? (laughs) But there's something special when we set aside time to celebrate Jesus together, to pray to him, to worship, to learn from him, to serve him. There's something special when we say, okay, we want some extended time to have some holy celebrations. We have this bring and share meal for a couple of reasons. One is it connects with communion which we're going to do in a, just a couple of minutes. In fact, if you ushers want to start bringing the communion elements to the front, that would be great. But also we do this because it's an opportunity for us not only to just to get to know people but also to celebrate the fact that we are one family in Jesus. It doesn't matter what you're your ethnicity is or your social background is or how much money you make or what you do for a living or how educated you are. None of that stuff means anything. If we are in Christ, we are one family. And family dinners is a good day. Having a family dinner is a good day. That's why we do this. Interesting, too, it says in the last part that they also, on the eighth day, they had this sacred assembly. It's this idea that they were committed to this time of corporate worship. Now, in case you didn't notice, we're a pretty laid-back church. In case you didn't notice, right? I mean, this is about as dressed up as I get. <laughs> and, and we are pretty casual. We're not offended by hearing babies cry or toddlers making a lot of noise. We don't really get bothered too much about the stuff. We recognize this is part of family life. It's not that big of a deal. That doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that we don't value reverence. It doesn't mean that we don't think it's important that we recognize that when we come together it's a holy thing. It's a sacred thing. And we want to be intentional about that. We don't have church membership. So so we don't know who's a member and who's not. Therefore we don't say, okay, only members now can take communion. Because we don't have membership. But we give you an opportunity to, to examine yourself, as the scripture says, so that you don't take Communion. You don't drink the cup and, and, and eat the bread in an unworthy manner. You don't do that as someone who actually doesn't believe or someone who's devaluing what Christ has done for you in, in that you're not responding to him. Why? Because we really believe that, that there's something sacred about that bit of grape juice and that unleavened bread. It's just grape juice and unleavened bread but when we set it apart for this purpose, and we use it for this end to remember what Christ has done, it's a sacred thing. And that means we have to take time to steady our hearts and to think about what we're doing before God. You know, Jesus, when he was uh, doing his ministry, one of the things he did, one of the most famous things he did was to feed the 5,000. You guys know that story, Right? All right, there, he's he's preaching to a crowd. He's ministering to a crowd for about three days. No one's had anything to eat. They've all kind of run out of food. He was actually on his way to a retreat with his disciples when this crowd came up. Finally, the disciples are like, Lord, you got to send these guys away. They're going to faint. They, they, they need to go get food. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they're all, where are we going to get lunch for 5,000 men plus women and children? Where, where are we going to get this? The little boy comes forward. He's got five loaves and two little, basically, Sardine fish or something. Some sprats, exactly. (laughs) And so Jesus takes those things and he gives thanks and he breaks them and he feeds all 10,000 probably plus people. He feeds all these people. And they're blown away by this. And the crowds are thinking, we like this. Miracle lunch? We can get used to this. If he's the Messiah, that means it's like a buffet every day. (laughs) This is good. And so the crowd follows him around. You see this recorded in John chapter 6. The crowd is following him around. And and basically, they're saying, "Uh, hey Jesus, how's it going today? You know, do you remember the story when Moses kind of gave manna to God's people every day? What do you think of that story? Hint, hint. I could use one of those fish sandwiches again, you know. And so Jesus says, he knows what their motives are. So here's what he says to them, listen, in John chapter 6. He says, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. He says, spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For the God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Well, The crowd hears this, and they don't really quite get it. They're still thinking free lunch, so they're going, oh, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? In other words, okay. All right, so you're saying I need to maybe do a bit more, maybe be more obedient. What, What is it you want me to do? Because we really want that free lunch. And Jesus says, he told them, this is the only word God wants from you, believe in the one whom he sent. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the gospel that we talk about, the good news about Jesus Christ, it starts with a command. The command is believe. Believe is a command. Jesus doesn't say, try it. Here's a sample of salvation for you. Taste and see. Is that okay? No, he commands. As Lord, Jesus is Lord, creator of the universe, Lord of all, he commands, believe. Believe. That's where all obedience starts. Will you Believe. <coughs>